Hello, good morning, and welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, and with me, as always, is Ellie Jacobs, who has the distinction of being the only man for whom time and tide actually do wait. Good morning, Ellie. Good morning, Frank. And they do actually wait for me. I watched it once. Um, we'd like to thank everybody for listening and for their comments, both positive and negative. Uh, we've gotten some interesting responses to our uh, uneducated ranting about single-payer health care. Um, you've, you know... You should expect such uneducated, ignoramus rantings in the future. Um, and we'd like to urge, and subs- urge you to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in pedantic. And uh, we're still on Facebook, um, although I don't know that we've actually done anything with it in quite some time. We probably should get around to doing that. Um, all right, so Frank, why don't we dive right in? Uh, let's start with the premise that Jonathan Chait is a fucking dipshit. Yeah, friends, we... Uh Oh, friends, we're sorry to do this to you, but we have to talk about Jonathan Chait. We have got to talk about Jonathan Chait. Uh, He's out of control. Jonathan Chait, for those of you who have uh, may not necessarily uh, be quite as in tune with uh, people who are part of, if not actually, people who are either part of or flirting with joining the Alt Center, uh, Jonathan Chait is a a liberal, neoliberal uh, columnist, writes for New York Magazine, previously with the New Republic, has written a couple of books. Uh, and and I, we don't want to give the entire history of the man here, except to say that um, he has there, there is something emblematic about his particular form of liberalism. Uh, that uh, there is something about his particular form of, of liberalism that is, I think, emblematic of a lot of the problems that we have with the alt center. Now uh, it is a little bit mannered. It's uh, and 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 there is, I think, you there is a. St- there is a very heavy element of uh, centrist elitism about how political decisions should be made uh, in the way that Jonathan shaded. That's been a theme with, with a lot of his writing. Let's put it that way. Um, so, you know, I, I say that by way of a disclaimer that I came into reading this uh, with, uh, all, you know, with, with a fairly jaundiced eye already uh, and, uh, and discovered that my, uh, the doubts with which I arrived were not nearly sufficient, uh, to, not nearly sufficient uh, for the subject matter of his most recent piece. Uh, Jonathan Chait has written a piece that effectively should be called How Not to Write or Talk About Racism and White Supremacy. Um, in fact, the piece that he's actually written uh, was, let me get its title here and its date so you can all read it if you choose to. We don't necessarily recommend it. So it's from September 24th, uh, and it is Donald Trump, White Supremacy and the Discourse of Panic. And his thesis is that by labeling everything white supremacy, that by labeling things that are not white supremacy, white supremacy, uh, the left has... Uh, has, uh, has robbed the word of its meaning and that we are in danger of of indulging in panic and I guess crying wolf about white supremacy uh, when in fact it, when in fact uh, it is not white supremacy it's just something else um, and the calling calling and his sort of thesis is calling Trump a white supremacist is not accurate uh, and we should stop doing it that was kind of that's 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 him pretty reduced is that a fair characterization Ellie would you say yeah that sums it up pretty well I okay. mean there's there's a lot more that we that we will dive into shortly. Sure. Yeah, but that's that's the essential gist of it, right? That by that his theory is Trump is, is you know is and he he is going after Tanahisi Coates. It's not the first time he's done that. Tanahisi Coates wrote a terrific piece, uh, essentially about Trump as a white supremacist, 
uh, and the thesis of Coates's piece, and then here the background ends, and we'll get into a little bit more about what Chait has written. The thesis of Coates's piece, this is a, a couple of weeks ago in the Atlantic, uh, was that Republican presidents for the in the modern era have all benefited from uh, racial animus in this country, and have all uh, signaled and stirred their agreement with uh, signaled their their agreement with that racial animus, and, and to a certain degree stirred it for their own political purposes using do- using dog whistles, uh, you know, using coded language, and that Trump has moved from uh, implicit language to explicit language, that he is more overtly uh, white supremacist than any president who's come before him. That's Coates' argument. Uh, Chait takes exception to that. Uh, so let me give you a few, and this again is a, and we bring this up not because we necessarily want to talk about Jonathan Chait. We never want to talk about Jonathan Chait, but because this is a really good example, again, of how not to write about uh, about. Uh, race and and white supremacy. So, and again, it's good that two white guys are talking about a third white guy, sure, and, and, and having to do around this. But yeah, that's, that's exactly. And this and this is it. Like we're conscious of the fact that, like, if we wanted to get into issues talking more substantively about race in this country, uh, we are not qualified to do that. Uh, however, as as white dudes, I think we we are reasonably qualified to do one thing, which is to chastise another white dude for having fucked this up. Oh yeah, um, for sure. To my ability to do that, for uh, sure. So, Chate this week. Uh, and just an example of why he is draw, drawing distinctions between draws distinctions between. Well, hey, Frank, why don't why don't we do it this way? Why don't I summarize the piece in the way that you summarized it to me when you texted yeah. it to me? You wrote yeah. uh, his position is essentially this: Trump is not a white supremacist because he is not an avowed and self declared Nazi or Klansman. The fact that he uses racism more aggressively than any previous president does not make does not make him an actual racist. That is yeah. the way you, that is the way you summed it up to me. That's the way, yeah. That, that's Which the way I summed up Chait's. That's the way I summed up Chait's argument exactly. So he draws these distinctions between the alt right and traditional conservatives and and white supremacists. So Chait says the alt right. This is a quote. The alt right was more racist than traditional conservatism, but it still did not identify as white supremacist. In one interview, Steve Bannon said, "quote I'm not a white nationalist. I'm a I'm not a white. I'm a nationalist." End quote. In another, he called white supremacists, quote, a bunch of clowns, end quote. This is not to absolve or defend Bannon, who is playing a repugnant game, drawing open white supremacists into his coalition and using their energy without going so far as to endorse their worldview completely. While at the same time, Bannon had multiple times said that Breitbart is the platform of the alt-right. Yeah, this is, this is, this is Chait telling us, uh, this is Chait, this is Chait telling us that Steve Bannon is not a white supremacist. This is like he actually, so this is, so that, so just, just take all that in mind. Steve, uh, Steve Bannon, according to uh, Jonathan Chait, is not a white supremacist because he denies being one, uh, despite the fact that he is open to white supremacists joining his coalition and uses their energy and so forth. Okay. He is also, and then this, this is sort of the nut of what Chait's argument is. Collapsing the political space between Trump and the white supremacist goons who thrilled to him is a rhetorical maneuver with important ramifications. And then he goes on to talk about the danger of those ramifications. Um, we didn't, the left, and his accusation is the left is the one that's collapsing the political space between Trump and white supremacists. Uh, this, is a, this is a search for nuance where none exists. Collapsing the political space between Trump's, Trump and white supremacists is not something that the left has done. I would argue that Trump did a pretty good job of that himself. Oh, this very is something happily Trump, he did. This is something that Trump brought to this. And the idea that, so, but in Chait's world, you can, as long as you say, I am not a white nationalist, then you're not a white nationalist. As long as you say, I am not a white supremacist, then you're not a white supremacist, uh, regardless of whether, regardless of whether you tolerate support, benefit from, or so forth, uh, that, uh, 
that to him, and this is, I think, this is the point that I really wanted to get into. To Chait, first of all, you know, there's this sort of pernicious idea of racism as something that is nuanced and great, and then and is a gradient. There's a degree of nuance. There's, you know, there are degrees of racism that are relevant distinctions that are important to keep in mind. That's that's where that's where Chait is, uh, and also this is this is the this is the mistake that I really want to hone in on here, because it's true not just for Jonathan Chait. But for a lot of a lot of white people, and a lot of and, and and this is very very true amongst liberals in the left as well as on the right, they see racism as simply they see racism as being defined by an intention and by an explicit articulation of purpose. Right? In order to be a racist, you have to be. You have, I mean, in order to be a white supremacist, I should say. Let's go with that. In order to be a white supremacist, you have to believe in. A kind of ordered ideology of white supremacy that promotes white people over people of color, uh, and if you do not explicitly subscribe to that and pu- and push for its execution and policy, then you are not a white supremacist. You are something else. That is that theory, and that is that's that's garbage. Uh, this is and and sort of dangerously intellectually myopic garbage. I would argue. Uh, I mean, it's. It is an inability to recognize that racism is an effect, not just an intention, that if you are supportive of and benefit from and tolerant of and, you know, and, and build a coalition of and so on and so forth, build a coalition out of a system that has racist effects like mass incarceration, like the, uh, like, you know, like the killing of uh, particularly of black men in America by police without any possible consequence, all of the stuff that we know is, is a you know, very racist and a, and, a, and a white supremacist set of interlocking systems that has been part of American life since the beginning. Uh, those effects are racist, whether or not you uh, be- whether or not you believe that is a worthy end, or simply say, "Ah, oh, well, the system, the system, you know, the system keep the system brutalizes black people." But what are you going to do? These people vote for me. Uh, either way, that is racist, and that's white supremacist. And Chait just can't seem to get his head around it, and so he's tying himself up in knots, trying to find ways to make someone who would equate the protesters against white supremacists in Charlotte, Charlottesville and the white supremacists themselves morally equal. Right. Somehow and that person is not, a, is not a white supremacist to Chait. Right. And, and this is where you and I kind of, well, we're in full agreement. Um, when we were discussing this uh, earlier in the week over text message, um, you, know, you summed up my point pretty well, that this is some of kind of some progressivism run, run amok, which is if you harbor no white supremacist beliefs, and we don't know what you harbor or what you believe because you're entitled to have your own opinion and do and, and, and think what you want. But if, as, as long as you don't act on it, you know, it's a creed versus dogma. It's like a creed versus activity kind of thing. Yeah. This is, but yeah. the difference is, is in this case, and I think that, that one, I think that there's one aspect of this that gets a little lost because um, it, it, to some extent, people on both sides are, are more comfortable talking about the dog whistling when it just has to do with black and white. Whereas there's dog whistling, which you know, we all agree Trump is do, is, has been doing all along. We agree that large swaths of the Republican Party do to gain electoral prominence. Um, but where Trump has been even more explicit is in his degradation of immigrants, his degradation of um, uh, Muslims, his degradation particularly of the Mexicans, I mean, just because it's not a necessarily a race issue, because it's not black white, there you know the xenophobia is just as terrible, and it also yeah, speaks to it also speaks to an, to the is, as, aspect of 
white supremacy. And, you know, I don't know if we want to go there quite yet about, you know, when we start talking about, you know, is there a differentiation in these terms because they seem to be used differently. But going back to kind of the intention versus the action, I mean, this is one of the media's uh, current critiques. Marty Barron, the, the, the uh, editor-in-chief of the Washington Post, in an interview yesterday uh, was asked why they don't use the term lie. Um, when it comes to Trump, whereas the New York Times at this point has started to use it a little bit more freely. And me media's response to that is because we don't know his intention. So therefore, we can't say that he's lying. We can just say that he was misrepresenting or misinformed. And while I understand that from a uh, factual basis, you can also add up facts and see that he is lying. Sure. And that other politicians lie. And that mm -hmm. other people lie. And at some point, you have to call a spade a spade and I think to get back to Chait here is he has some sort of absolute inability to call uh, to call a spade a spade. That's exactly it. This is and and the idea this this is weirdly this is the worst perversion and this is the you know this is uh, this is you know partly I think this has turned into another PSA against alt centrism because one nah. of the now nah, Sophia perish the thought this is one of the one of the characteristics of this particular kind of brand of centrist and indeed a kind of you know a, a certain strain of kind of liberal progressivism that I think can curdle into this. Uh, you know, the old saying that a, that a liberal is someone who won't take his own side in a fight. This is the absolute most perverse version of that, that we would spend time and energy trying to distinguish. Well, you shouldn't call him a white supremacist because someone who believes in ra the racial superiority of white people uh, over, uh, you know, over black people, over uh, Hispanic people, over anyone else, um, someone who believes in the racial superiority of, you know, of white people, but doesn't subscribe to an organized orderly, you know, it, is uh, doesn't subscribe to an organized ideology that would actually do something about it is not a white supremacist. So I guess like a racist is just a lazy white supremacist like that. The, I mean, if you want to talk about a distinction without a difference and here I now speak out of my own qualification. So, uh, you know, freely, it will surprise all of you to learn who didn't know this already that I am a white dude. Uh, but I will say if I were <laughs> Frank's almost clear someone trying to find nuance between, oh, yeah, like this person certainly supports, you know, any system or policy or action um, that, you know, that brutal, you know, that brutalizes people of color and keeps them down, but isn't willing to do anything about it himself. Therefore, he's a racist and not a white supremacist. And this is an important and meaningful distinction would drive me up the goddamn wall. Right. And I think where, you know, one of the things that where the language and the labels and all this sort of stuff, uh, comes to mind and this struck me this morning is right left and center everyone agrees because there's recorded evidence of it that richard nixon was both racist and an anti-semite he often would use anti-semitic slurs even directed at henry kissinger who was his national security advisor he was admittedly racist in the way he spoke he designed the southern strategy which the republicans have just been riding on since then but to my mind, and I could just be completely uh, naive and uneducated on this point, I've never heard him heard Richard Nixon referred to as a white supremacist, which got me to thinking why the white supremacist label, what does it represent? Is, it just, is the difference between a racist and a white supremacist is that a racist is too lazy to actually do something to make the white supreme? They just want to you know, degrade and talk down to uh, uh, African-Americans. Whereas a white supremacist, I don't know, they want to put them all in camps and kill them. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's, you know, subscribing to some kind of Nazi ideology, although certainly some of their followers seem to believe that. Um, certainly some of the chants you heard in Charlottesville uh, were, were, were close to that. 
but the language the language is is an interesting issue and i bring up nixon again as sort of the example and maybe some of the the way that we use language differently is because the country has evolved in the last 40 years and certain terms and um, ways of speaking about other people are verboten whereas if he didn't use it at a campaign speech, it wouldn't shock me that he, you know, used it in a large meeting with a large group of other people that Richard Nixon used the N word in, in larger public than just, you know, in private recordings in the Oval Office. I don't see Donald Trump doing that now, which, you know, that uh, societal evolution is a good thing, but I don't know what that means in terms of why the white supremacy label is being raised now, um, for, I mean, there are white supremacists who have come from the, from the shadows. And I think that's one of the big points that Frank and I have discussed a lot on this podcast is what Trump allowed to happen and Steve Bannon allowed to happen was for this small group. You want to speak of, you know, the silent minority, this small, this increasingly smaller group, although clearly still substantial, you know, the polling, you know, Again, to say it again, when Hillary Clinton said half of his supporters are deplorables and you say it's 20% of the population, that's one in five people hold deplorable views. That's not outlandish to think about. It's not, you know, even one in 10, if you want to, you know, slim it down even more. Polling suggests that. Trump's support suggests that. So that group of people, whether it's the David Dukes deciding he's going to run for Senate again or Richard Spencer deciding, you know, he's going to be on TV and do 60-minute interviews or whatever else it might be, that something about Donald Trump and the environment that he and Steve Bannon have together created has allowed these people to come back out of the shadows where for the better part of the last 20 years, and again, I'm not saying that the world has been some kind of you know halcyon dream over the last 20 years, but over the last 20 years, they have been more isolated into the shadows than they have been in the last two years. Sure, they've come back out for they've come back out in part because Trump has absolutely given them permission to come back out, right? Like this is this is their time, and they've come back out in response to America having had a black president. This is one of Tony Hezen Coates's central arguments in the piece that he wrote was that so much of this is about undoing everything Obama did it because yep. everything Obama did because it was done by a black man. Um, but I will say that you know, and it's interesting that you raise your point about Nixon and the way that like he could be he could be called a racist. He's not called a racist as often as he should be, but anyone who's like anyone is like he clearly was like he used the language. He clearly held some of the stuff like there was there was clearly both an attitude that he held and an intention, but why he wouldn't be called a white supremacist. And I think the reason this word has popped up and, and I, you know, I, I think we're in danger of twisting ourselves into knots a little bit on this thing. But the reason that that term has popped up again is that finally we are now recognized. We are now calling a spade a spade. I mean, there really isn't, a, to my mind, a functional difference between. Uh, believing in and supporting and being, you know, and get, you know, and, and, and believing in and supporting a system that, uh, you know, perpetrates violence in varying degrees, including lethal against communities of color and people of color, uh, and actually putting on an armband and doing something about it, right? Like there really isn't a meaningful distinction there. Uh, and, and what you then do about that is a separate thing. Um, but the idea that there's some kind of genteel distinction, oh, well, you sh- you mustn't call him a white supremacist. He's really just a racist, seems to me, again, the ultimate perversion of a, progr- of a liberal's inability to take his own side in a fight. Um, and for a, a different view that I don't, I really am not going to get into the, the detail of this thing at all, but uh, Alex Perrine, who's quite a good writer, uh, now the political writer, and I think the editor of Splinter, which is what became of Gawker uh, after, it, uh, after, it was, uh, par- after it was broken up and sold off, 
uh, has written a good piece on on Chait that it has a somewhat different take about what Chait is going for here. His theory is that Chait's real fear is that we is that the Democratic Party and the and and liberals will start talking like the left. Uh, so it's it's an interesting piece. I encourage you to read that. It's on Splinter by Alex Perrine. Uh, that's that's just another view on what has happened here that I think is is compelling. Uh, I think he's partly right, but I think he misses out the he misses out on the fact that there is something about Chait's own internal belief system that really does want him, that really does lead him to want to make fine distinctions between racists and white supremacists in a way that I think is deeply unhelpful and actually, frankly, pathological. And I enjoin you, good listeners, to avoid this terrible symptom of alt-centrism. Yeah, I'm actually, I have the, uh, the, the kind of the nut graphs of uh, Perrine's piece in front of me just because I screenshotted when I was reading it. Um, so he goes through some and he, he mentions, you know, uh, Chait's um, uh, recognition of Steve King, Steve King and, you know, his equivocation about Steve King. Um, so again, this is this, the, what I'm going to read now is all Perrine. Uh, quote, he, meaning Chait, he's saying, don't call conservatives white supremacists, mostly because he doesn't like the idea of a politics in which Democrats and liberals and not just a fringe left wing condemn white supremacist tendencies by name. Chait is policing the way the left does politics because he does not want the left wing style of doing politics to gain prominence. Something that is well known to people who've read Chait for years, but may not be apparent to those who just think of him as a standard issue center left pundit who is sort of clueless about race that's a long sentence, is that he is engaged in a pretty specific political project, ensuring that you and people like you don't gain control of his party. Sure. Read the rest of Perrine's piece. I think there's a lot to it. Um, and this, and he's certainly right about Chait's long-term plan. Again, I think there's more to it. I actually think Chait is doing this in part in seriousness, but, uh, and, and again, it is, it, it leads him to some, it leads him and the left into some really toxic places uh, that in the end leads us to what you have seen actually here on this, on this podcast, which is, uh, white people talking about the fine distinctions between racism and white supremacy, which if I were a voter or a person of color who was interested in politics, I would, I would find pretty alienating and I might start looking for other ways and other places, other venues by which to get involved in politics uh, rather than coming into it from this entree. I will just close my, say the last thing that I want to, I want to say here is there was a writer who wrote something pretty good back in 2012 about uh, the contemporary Republican agenda. And I want, I want to quote from that. So this is from 2012. The glue holding together the contemporary Republican agenda, the fierce defense of entitlement spending on the elderly, the equally fierce opposition to welfare spending on the young, the backlash against illegal immigration, the nationalist foreign policy, the cultural traditionalism, is ethnocentrism. Republicans are defending the shared cultural prerogatives of a certain group of people. Now, that is, so that, that's the quote from 2012. If that is not a description of, you know, of, of racism, ethnocentrism, defending the shared cultural prerogatives of a certain group of people, uh, I don't know what is. That writer was Jonathan Chait. What has happened in the intervening five years that this guy seems to have lost track of what this whole thing was about? Yep. Um, yeah, so I think we've crapped on Chait enough. Um, you know, one, one last thought, and then we can move this into, actually, no, not even a last thought. We'll just move this into the next thing because we actually, we have a planned transition, folks. We're not selling mattresses. We actually have a planned transition between topics. To be clear, we are, we are very much selling mattresses. Yes. I don't want you to leave with the wrong impression, but, but yes. And those sons of bitches at stamps.com better call us. That's exactly, we don't want again, that is a betrayal of our philatelist base. <laughs> I refuse to indulge in any commerce with stamps.com. Stamps.com is dead to us. Uh, I am a Casper mattress ultra. 
uh, Casper Mattress partisan. It's Casper Mattresses. Give me Casper, give me death. Yeah, that sounds about right. But so uh, what started this week, um, as many people know, was uh, Donald Trump's rally in Alabama for uh, Big Luther Strange, who lost. Um, And at this rally, uh, Trump went on, at the time, what seemed, even for him, a strange tangent into the NFL and into Colin Kaepernick and other players taking a knee. Um, This started uh, last season, Colin Kaepernick, in response to... um, uh, African-American men being killed by police, uh, decided to take a knee during the national anthem. Well, he starts, he started sitting on the bench and then he decided to, to take a knee. Um, he was the only player that was doing it for most of the season. This season, a few more have done it. And as Frank um, uh, has said on this podcast before, uh, Colin Kaepernick is still unemployed and not for him not being a good quarterback, uh, but largely because, well, NFL owners uh, are mostly old white guys who don't like the idea of a black guy being um, and I hate to use this term, um, but I will use it in, you know, the way that uh, Jerry Jones or uh, Bob Kraft might say it, uh, uppity. Um, but, uh, you know, we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about Trump in the NFL, but we're doing this in the context of one of our old uh, uh, taking ship canards of everything Trump does is either based on malice or incompetence. Um, and with that, Frank, where are we going with this? So I think... Uh, Maybe we should re-explain the malice and competence scale. Yeah, again. so this is the theory. It's, it's actually, I mean, I, you know, I would say it's, it's not so much a canard as it is a trope. Uh, come to taking ship for these sort of fine uh, narrative distinctions. Uh, there, is a, there is kind of a notion, we, we've been pushing back against the notion that what, and, and I, it's, you hear it a little bit less now after, as the months have gone on, but for a long time there was a theory that anything Trump or, you know, Bannon when he was in the White House or anything anyone did was, this incredibly calculated decision on their part that these, you know, these people, every inflammatory, inexplicable thing they did was designed to distract you from the Russia investigation or was to distract you from this or that or the other thing, right? There's a need. I mean, you still see this uh, amongst the, particularly on sort of online with the hashtag resistance, a need to believe that there's an animating intelligence because that at least is an enemy that you can understand. It's an enemy that you can get your head around and and can almost not exactly respect, but you can feel like you have been done in by, uh, by someone's plan as opposed to uh, a much uglier reality to confront, which is that we are living in dumbest timeline America. Um, So the idea was, this is like there that, uh, you know, that, that what, that everything they did with everything this administration does is animated by malice. The counter argument to that is Actually, these people are just hapless and really, really dumb, uh, and that they are so they are in fact just deeply incompetent. And the point that we would make is, malice and incompetence are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are the two they are the two driving forces of this administration, and and particularly of what Trump is Trump himself is doing within it. Um, so that brings us to why Trump would would go on this would go on this rant in the NFL, which about the NFL, which he has since doubled down on. Uh, via Twitter, uh, which is, of course, his, you know, his favorite means of doubling down on anything. And you know, his argument about the NFL, his, what he said about the NFL uh, in the rally for Big Luther Strange was, uh, you know, well, Frank, be- before, before you jump into that, yeah. uh, we want to make a plea to Jack Dorsey and the folks at Twitter. Now that you're testing out this 280 character bullshit, which is the worst idea ever. And as we set out on our uh, Twitter feed, on our own Twitter feed, uh, we should be working towards zero characters allowed, not more characters allowed on Twitter. Uh, but in the meantime, please allow Donald Trump 280 characters because we are not convinced he can think in that many words. 
This is an excellent point. Uh, we'll see if he can maintain the integrity of his thoughts. Uh, well, I mean, as we've seen, he can't maintain the integrity of his thoughts over 140. So, uh, yeah, that's that's a, a truly gruesome experiment, but one that we may yet get to see. Uh, yeah. So essentially, what he said at the at the rally, we could go into it in great detail, except to say that he, you know, he said, "Wouldn't it be great if one of these owners, you know, saw one saw a player taking a knee and said, you know, get that son of a bitch off the field, he's fired." Trump's exact words. Uh, and he is he also, and this is another interesting point. That those comments were the ones, rightly, that were most picked up upon because it is again because it is one hundred percent playing on the racial animus of uh, of his of his base uh, who resent the idea of players of color taking a knee uh, during a during a performance of uh, of patriotism. If you want to hear more about, if you want to read about um, the NFL's uh, history with the performance of patriotism and why that's put them in a bad political spot, uh, I, I wrote a, a thing and put it up on the Huffington Post. Uh, I will not regurgitate that piece here. Uh, but Trump also, and understandably, that's what that's what we people focused on because it, it should be. Uh, also, uh, it, that coincided with Trump getting into a Twitter spat with uh, with various members of the NBA uh, when uh, when when superstar of the Golden State Warriors Steph Curry uh, was uh, 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 either um, was initially ambivalent about the idea of going to the White House as championship teams do, uh, and and was and then decided that he did not want to do it. Uh, Trump got uh, huffy on uh, on Twitter and said, "Well, his invitation is uh, you know, Steph Curry's invitation is revoked." Uh, and then LeBron James dunked Donald Trump into the center of the earth on Twitter. So you've got this guy who is out, the President of the United States being this guy, uh, who is out in in public remarks and on Twitter. Going after uh, primarily uh, black athletes who are taking a knee to protest police violence against communities of color during the national anthem, and he is also publicly feuding uh, with uh, a couple of uh, you know with with a number of other black athletes from a different sport. So it is right and proper to view this through a racial lens. Trump also Wait, before before we dive into the racial lens, the reason we bring this up on the, under the guise of the malice and incompetence uh, mm-hmm. theme is you saw a lot on. Uh, Twitter and Facebook and other people, um, and again, we bring this up, it, it, it's, uh, there's a certain level of desperation um, when people try to say that, when people decide that Trump does these things to distract from something else. Um, to, as Frank said, it's desperation because, uh, you know, as Sun Tzu told us, uh, you know, you need to know your enemy and you can only fight your enemy when you understand how they're doing it. And so you need to put, people feel the need that they need to put norm, political norms around Trump so that the resistance can resist appropriately. And therefore, he did all this about the NFL to distract from the fact that uh, the New York Times was going to be writing about Jared Kushner and several other members of the administration using private email and Tom Price uh, using a private jet and, John, and uh, Pruitt using a private jet and Mnuchin using a private jet and Don Jr. You know, ditching his secret service to go hunting in the Yukon for a week. Um, no. That's not why he did this. That's that's right. So what I was going to say is, it is right and proper to view this through a racial lens. There is that, but Trump also said something else that I think is really significant at uh, in the uh, in the rally, which is a lo- at the rally in Alabama, which is along with his remarks about players kneeling. He also said, and they're cha- he also talked complained about changing the rules in the sport. So as he put it, that players can't hit as hard. Uh, that is actually not at all what has happened, but he's complaining about rules uh, against targeting that the NFL has introduced to, and I mean, talking about closing the, this, talk about closing the barn door after the horse is bolted, uh, that, the, that the NFL has introduced to try and cut down on the epidemic of head injuries, uh, which I think ultimately may be the greatest existential threat, maybe the existential threat to the NFL is uh, the fact that, you know, the, the you know, uh, players, 
are demonstrating significant head injury, uh, you know, in their twenties. Um, it used to be thought that they're, you know, that this kind of the cognitive consequences were at least several years removed, but in fact, actually, we're beginning to see players who are demonstrating significant cogn- uh, significant cognitive damage, uh, neural damage, uh, into in their twenties. That I think actually is, is if anything, is going to bring down the NFL. It's probably that. But but Trump and so they've introduced some rules that per, that forbid you from, example, targeting someone's head if you're making a tackle or so, or so forth. And Trump complained about them uh, at the rally. Said you know they've they've introduced these new rules, which which uh, is basically akin to everybody's allowed to carry a gun, but you can't fire it at someone. Yeah, the whole point about this is so Trump and and Trump's objection was, I mean, this is the most. This is a truly troglodyte complaint about the NFL. Uh, the idea that oh well, you know they're turning it into a sissy sport. They're not al- they're they're not allowed to aim at each other's heads. Uh, you know, as if I mean, th- you know, that is a the most prosaic form of complaint about this. The idea that the sport was better when the idea that the sport somehow is better when guys are allowed to give each other explicitly aim to uh, aim for each other's heads, give each other terrible concussions, uh, and you know that there's something inherently virtuous about a sport leaving people crippled in their thirties. Uh, in the scariest possible way. Uh, so that's where Trump is. And this is the point. This is what leads us back to the malice point. That is not play- that's playing a little bit on the resentment of his base, right? There's probably some people out there, some Trump voters who are like, yeah, you know, you know, the sport was so much better back when, again, these guys could just bang each other's brains out all day long. Right. Well, that goes to some of, you know, the way that here at Taking Ship, we define the white working class. Again, it's not an economic distinction. It's, this, it's a cultural distinction, and it's people who fear change, essentially. Sure, so, it, you know, it fetishizes the extreme Trump, violence of football. Right. Trump yeah. getting up and saying, oh, it was better then, that's a callback to let's make America great again. It exactly. was better before. Sure. Whenever, is, you, whenever there were coal jobs and there were steel jobs and you didn't need more than a high school degree to do well in this country, that's what Trump is calling back to. Sure, that this is exactly right. Um, and, and so why has he chosen to go after this and to stay with it now? Because now he's doubling back. He's going back at, at the NFL owners. Uh, he's you know, been critical of them. Many of them gave a lot of money to his inauguration committee. Uh, he's going back after NFL owners. Uh, he's going after Roger Goodell. He's going after anyone in professional football. To Ellie's point, this is not about this. You know, it would be fun and easy to say this was about distracting the public, taking the public narrative away from any of the other embarrassments that have that have afflicted his administration recently. But there's actually something much simpler about this. This is the straight malice of Donald Trump because he has a bone to pick with the NFL itself. And I will be brief on this, but it's worth pointing out that back in the 1980s, an alternative football league called the USFL. Uh, was set up, and the idea was they were, you know, there was there were the the theory was there's room for two leagues, two football leagues in America. The USFL was going to play in the spring, and the NFL was going to play in the fall. And the USFL would be a way people would pay to pay. The idea was people would pay to pay money to see football anytime. Uh, so rather than compete with the NFL, this startup league was going to compete in the spring, uh, and they did. And they actually had, I mean, the first year they didn't make a lot of money. Uh, but that was the initial year, right? Like the idea was, we're going to introduce this thing. We don't expect to make and money. They had, the first they year. had big players. You know, they had big players. They had Steve they had Young Steve started Young, in the USFL. Herschel, Herschel Walker started in the USFL. That's right. I think Jim Kelly might have started in the I, USFL. Like there I, were a I number of guys. Right. There, there's a phenomenal yes, uh, 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 you know, uh, taking ship uh, endorsement that you can take to the bank. Um, the ESPN 30 for 30 series is one of the best things on television. It's just and you should watch all of them. Uh, the USFL one in particular is outstanding um, yeah. because it they, explains the whole thing and goes into the Trump thing that Frank's about to explain. Yeah. So it's, it's really good. Watch it. Um, Trump bought into the U S bought a, bought into the USFL in its second season 
And he decided that what they should do, and he got the other owners to sort of go along with, to go along with this was they're not going to play spring ball. They're going to play fall ball. And they're going to, so they're going to play during the NFL season. And the way they're going to do this is to sue the NFL um, for being monopolist because at the time the, you know, the, because the three net, because the three major networks uh, had deals with the NFL that they would only carry professional football that was provided by the NFL. Uh, so they go from having a, a business model that, while modestly successful, was had promised to be successful. You know, a good spring league uh, with you know some good players and people would pay to watch players play in the spring, uh, and decide you know know what actually we're going to go after the NFL. We're going to sue them, um, and and they they did sue the NFL under the you know spearheaded by Donald Trump. They did sue the NFL and, and Roy Cohn. It should be mentioned and Roy Cohn. That's exactly right. And sued the NFL for being monopolist uh, in a way that harmed the USFL, and they won. They won. The jury found on the USF found for the USFL. Uh, they asked for uh, the USFL had asked for one point two billion dollars in damages. The jury gave them a dollar. Now, because it was an antitrust case, uh, the jury gave them uh, they, they, so the, that that amount was tripled to three dollars. And with interest over the course of uh, of the proceedings, it amounted to three dollars and seventy six cents. The fact that the USFL wasn't pursuing an effective strategy during this time, was sinking money into legal fees, was going on this weird, quixotic effort to take down the NFL as opposed to just playing spring ball, uh, pretty much ruined the USFL, ended the league. Uh, So Donald Trump, having bought into a successful enterprise, ran it straight into the ground uh, because he couldn't stand the idea of the NFL being more popular than something he was doing and thought he could take it down for $1.2 billion and instead screwed over everyone who was involved in that enterprise. And this comes back out again in 2017 at a rally in support of a soon-to-be-losing GOP candidate uh, for Senate. It is absolutely – so that's the – this is Trumpian malice of of the first water. Um, and then the, as for the incompetence part, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, they roll out their tax plan and Trump uh, gets off by the standard line for wealthy people who are trying to push for tax cuts, which is this is a tax plan that doesn't benefit me. I don't like it because I don't get anything much out of it, but it's the right plan. It's not a bad line. Um, and then he immediately goes on about the NFL and how the NFL is on, its, is on the road to hell. And just whatever messaging he had on taxes is blown completely to hell by the fact that he's still talking about the NFL. So this Trump and the NFL is the malice and incompetence of this administration and this individual uh, wrapped up in a nice, neat little package. Yeah. And just uh, the last, the last two thoughts on it. Um, For starters, uh, the line of this tax plan is not going to help me. uh, That's when Bill Clinton uh, rolled out in 2011 uh, during a press conference with uh, Barack Obama, when they were trying to defend the tax plan that the uh, Democrats and Republicans were going to uh, agree to uh, to extend the Bush tax cuts, tax tax cuts, and Bill Clinton said, uh, "This does, you know, the Democratic plans don't help me, but this is a good thing." So, Trump used it because it's a good line. Uh, in his case, it's one hundred percent not true whatsoever. Uh, this plan oh, yeah, benefits him. Line. This plan benefits him tremendously. Um, one of the part we we're not going to go into the tax plan uh, in, in a whole lot of detail because uh, it's only been out a few days. Uh, it's not going to go into effect. Um, because everybody on the hill is incompetent, and we're going to get into that next. Um, but also because, uh, uh, you know, one thing that I thought was glaringly missing from this, uh, which I found fascinating, was carried interest was not in the tax plan. Uh, not to go too far afield on this, but carried interest is essentially um, limited liability partnerships, primarily hedge funds, private equity funds, venture capital funds. They make money in two ways. They make money on uh, the fees that they charge people and then the... the um, uh, um, 
the profit they make. So it's usually called the two and 20 system. They take 2% in fees and they take 20% of whatever profits they make. They are only taxed on the 2%. Uh, they are not taxed on the 20%. Um, they are taxed at the, at the, at the 2%. And then because of capital gains and whatever, they're not taxed at the 20%. Uh, Donald Trump ran on getting rid of carried interest. Hillary Clinton ran on getting rid of carried interest. Uh, the Democrats went after it hard uh, when they had capital hit, um, in 2007 when they were in charge of the Hill. It's not gone anywhere. Anyway, it's not in the plan, uh, which is just you know mildly interesting. But the last thing that I, w- I will mention, because Frank brought this up in the context of the NFL thing, and then this will give us the opportunity to pivot towards um, uh, our next and last topic, um, Rick Wilson, who is a political consultant that Frank and I have discussed in the past, uh, who is a uh, the epitome of an of a never Trump Republican, although uh, he is a bog standard Republican who has done miserable ads against Democrats, uh, he has a theory that we have accepted as a tenet of faith on taking ship, um, which is more than a canard and more than a uh, um, whatever Frank said the other the other level was a trope. A trope, yes. Um, a tenet of faith is that everything Donald Trump ter- touches turns to shit. As yeah. he did, and he touched the USFL, right. it turned to shit. He touched casinos, they turned to shit. He touched a, a, a airline, it turned to shit. And the tax plan, just like healthcare before, it will turn to shit once Donald Trump decides to get involved. And where we turn with this, again, man, we are good when we plan out transition, transitions. Tommy John underwear. No. Um, <laughs> where we turn next is uh, we're going to continue talking about Luther Strange and Roy Moore um, because Roy Moore won, Luther Strange lost. So we will never have the opportunity to see bills sponsored on Capitol Hill, uh, the Strange Schumer bill or the Strange Sanders bill, which was always the one I was hoping for. Yeah. Strange that's, Warren that's, bill. Is, we've, we, I mean, it is difficult to estimate how much we have lost losing, not just a guy named Strange, but a guy named Strange who is, you know, 6'9", or whatever he is, right? Yeah, big like, Luther. Big Luther. I mean, it's just, we, I mean, it's, this, is, this, is a, this, is a, this is a sad day in many respects for me. Yeah, my, I think my favorite thing in the world, one of my favorite things in the last eight months has been the, was the picture of uh, Jeff Sessions standing next to Luther Strange. Right, it looked like, a, it looked like an outtake from The Hobbit. I yeah. mean, it was just like <laughs> some kind of forced perspective. God, was that weird? It was, I mean, but this is it, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's sort of. I mean, you know, I don't know what the man's like in his private life, but the idea that someone's name is Luther Strange is a case of nominative determinism. Something about <laughs> the guy was going to be real weird. Yeah. Um, so Roy Moore wins. Um, in um, not surprising to anybody who can read a poll. Um, surprising to the leadership in the Senate because Luther Strange was the incumbent and therefore he had saint-like status and was expected to win, hope to win. Donald Trump backed him uh, despite the fact that uh, his uh, sometime conciliary Steve Bannon was backing Roy Moore. Uh, Roy Moore um, is a former state Supreme Court justice who very famously set up a monument to the Ten Commandments in front of his courthouse. Uh, They were, uh, he was uh, um, ordered to remove them. He refused. I think that was the first time he was censured. And then he refused to um, uh, uh, implement the um, same-sex uh, marriage requirements, uh, and that was the. I think that's when he was removed from the bench. Um, yes, it would be right to characterize him as a lawless theocrat. I like that. I like that. Maybe that should go on T-shirts. Lawless theocrat. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Huh. I'm gonna write that. Go on a T-shirt that he wears. <laughs> we should send one to we his office. Him. That would actually be really handy. 
Um, so we're bringing this up in the context because, um, in particular, uh, there is a lot of infighting in the Republican Party right now trying to understand what is happening. Um, Republican leadership still doesn't understand why Donald Trump won. Um, they don't understand why Roy, why Roy Moore won. They don't understand the popularity of people like Dave Clark in Milwaukee and Joe Arpaio in Arizona. Um, so there is a lot of worry um, that the base has, the, you know, the leadership looks and doesn't understand the base's contempt for Mitch McConnell and other Republicans. Um, you know, that they hate Mitch McConnell as much as they detested Barack Obama. Um, so the question that we have is, where are our weirdos? Yes. Why do Democrats, this is raised by, uh, by, by a friend of, I assume, I hope friend of the podcast, certainly we friend hope. of ours. Yeah. Um, certainly personal friend of ours, uh, the great Zach Townsend, uh, raised an interesting question uh, the other day, which is who is the left's Roy Moore? And it's a good question. It's one that I can't really answer. No. Why have we no weirdos? Why have we no weirdos, Frank? I mean, it, really think about it. Like we love, like, and, and I look. I mean, I love to make fun of the of the of the left, and I mean both liberals and for and leftists broadly. Like, I mean, it's it is a it is a great joy and coping mechanism for me. Uh, and e- and and yet, even I have to admit that while we have some fairly strange people here, here you know, here and there. We don't have a, you know, we don't have a David Clark. Again, I mean, this is a, this this guy's done very real harm, and and you know, is sort of not to be taken solely as a, as a figure of fun, but like, you know, a dude who wears a who wears a sheriff's uniform and then adorns it with like just like random pins that he's been given that are totally unrelated to being a sheriff, right? Like we don't like we it's don't. It's basically this. It's basically the scene from Office Space. He needed the flare. Yeah, he needed the flare. That's exactly right. That's that, that's that's precisely it. That's the best joke about that one like um <laughs> I mean, no it really is like i can't think of any i can't think of a better one that's precisely it he looks like the kind of marshal or police version of a tgi fridays or whatever it is yeah, it looks like those commanders those commandants in north korea that have so many medals they go down to their pants this is exactly that's the yes that's exactly right there's a sort of there is a kind of like banana republic quality to the guy uh, or or you know joe arpeo you know who again is this i mean a, you know a very serious monster in some respects but like is the kind of weirdo that you know, riles up a certain portion of the right's base and allows, and this is the critical point, kind of sets the edge for just how right-wing and weird you can be. Yeah. Like, and this is what these, this is the utility of people like Roy Moore, who again is a lawless theocrat. Uh, it's, it establishes how far to the right you can go. We haven't done that on the left really. And, and I know there's some people out there who, who you know, maybe having some of my, you know, my fellow political professionals who are probably having heart attacks. And I'm like, for God's sake, what are you calling for here? If it sounds like I'm calling for us to develop some left-wing weirdos, uh, yeah, I kind of am actually, uh, because I would like to see how far left we can go because I think I am increasingly of the view that we can go a lot farther left than we actually think we can and get away with it. I think what you can get away with being a leftist is a, being on, you know being on the left is actually a lot leftier than we have been letting ourselves do. Yeah, and the point we bring up with this is that people will say, "Oh, Bernie Sanders is left, and Tulsi Gabbard is left." Yes, they are, but they are not Roy Moore, Dave Clark, and Jar Pio left. And the important yeah. distinction between just listing people on the left who are lunatics, um, you know, wherever you fall on, you know, I don't know what's the the uh, the, the the guy at uh, Princeton, Peter Singer, you know, wrote the book Animal Liberation. Right. Stops one page short of basically saying that animals and people should be procreating because everything should be equal. Fine. That that's where you want to go or whatever you want to say. He's not an elected member of anything. Whereas all three of these people, Dave Clark, Roy Moore, Roy Moore and Joe Arpaio are all elected officials. Um, and that's the distinction. So, you know, for instance, where Bernie Sanders is, 
yeah, he's a loony lefty, but he's, you know, he's in the schema of things. He's, he's, his equivalent would be Rand Paul or Ted Cruz. Right. They're part of the, they are, they are, they're within a spectrum of, of things. Yeah, to, yeah, exactly. To the edge of the mainstream of their own party or at, or at worst, maybe within a standard deviation of the mainstream of their own party on the outside. Right. right. If you want to think of this as sort of like, uh, why don't we do it this way? Colorfully Roy G. Biv, right? Yeah. You do the color, the colors of the spectrum. So, you know, if we're saying that G is dead center, mm-hmm. you know, basically everybody in Congress probably floats somewhere between, you know, the Y and the B, maybe floating into the O and I a little bit. But sure, you're nobody in, right there in the center. Yeah, right. Nobody on the Democratic side hits either the R or the V. Again, depending on how you're structuring this thing. Whereas on the Republican side, we've, we've just listed three people who are elected officials who are absolutely sure on the on the B or the B or the R. Again, depending on how you're structuring it. And only one of them is a federal, uh, is, has been elected to federal office. Actually, Moore has not been elected to federal office yet, uh, and he might not be. It's within the realm of possibility that he will be beaten by the Democrat, uh, Doug Jones. I, I would not bet the farm on that. This is Alabama, uh, but it's within the realm of possibility. But the point here is, but even so, and, you know, and Clark, who is no longer uh, an elected official, he, you know, he left the, uh, the office of sheriff in, in Milwaukee, uh, but he was elected. Arpaio, no, no longer a sheriff, left that, uh, left that role as well, both of them under clouds. Uh, Arpaio under conviction. Uh, well, not anymore. No, yeah, exactly. Which was yeah, pardoned. Uh, still convicted though. Uh, you can't unconvict the man. True. Um, so the gist of it. So yes, these are not. You know, it, it is not that people like that get elected to federal office as Republicans. Although again, if more is, and as I think likely, and then there are people in Congress who certainly would fall into some of these. Some of the you know certainly would be considered part and parcel with this particular group of weirdos. Uh, yeah, there's some of those weird Congress guys who've been up there for like, you know, 30 years yeah, and just so absolute got, lunatics. And some of the Tea Party intake. Like, I mean, I guess the, the point is these are all people who are who would be sort of considered who would be considered part of the Republican Party. People would fundraise with them. People would be seen in public with them. People would like they're leveraged by a presidential campaign. And, yeah, a lot of Republicans neither like nor trust the, Dave, the David Clarks and Jarpeos of the world. But they are nonetheless they set the parentheses of how far, how lunatic to the right you can actually be and still be roughly considered a member in good standing of that party. Within the, within the left, we, we know we've had people who sort of flirt with that, but generally speaking, like our serious lefties are people like, you know, Jill Stein, who is not a, who is, you know, runs against the party is not a member of the party, right? Like she's just kind of a member of the leftist space, but she's not, she doesn't set the parentheses of what it is to be a Democrat because she's not a Democrat. Now, uh, even someone like Bernie Sanders, even if he were to register as a Democrat, wouldn't really set the wouldn't qualify to set the edge for what it is to be, you know, a really, you know, insanely far left Democrat. He is, you know, certainly leftier than most of what would be his Democratic colleagues if he were a Democrat, officially one. Uh, but still like this, you know, the, the idea that he is wildly and insanely out of step with American political uh, with American politics or culture would just be wrong in the way that kind of Arpaio and Clark are really are accepted members of the Republican Party or were, despite the fact that they really be, have, take this fringe politics and more is, is of that stripe as well. Yeah. One, one of my, so we need more lunatics people run ye lefty lunatics. Uh, so help us figure out where we are. Yeah. And uh, going back to some of, you know, kind of the normalization of Roy Moore, uh, there was a great article in Politico um, by John uh, Bresnahan, uh, where he went to go talk to some of the Republican uh, current members of the Senate um, and asked them what their thoughts about Roy Moore uh, I'm just going to, you know, quickly hop through some of them. Uh, Susan Collins, Chuck Grassley both said I didn't know, don't know anything about him. Jenny Isaacson of Georgia said never met the gentleman, but I've heard a little bit about him on TV and in the papers. Um, he said I'll keep my comments to my own. 
John Kennedy of Louisiana said he's entitled to his opinion. This is America. You can believe what you want. Um, asked, is more racist or homophobe? Kennedy responded, you're going to have to talk to him about that. Um, John Barrasso, my favorite from Wyoming, said, quote, I want to make sure we hold the seat. I want to make sure he wins in Alabama. Um, and then where, where do we really go? Points for abject honesty on that one. Is this man a dangerous lunatic? Maybe, but he's got a good shot at winning. Yeah. Um, Dean Heller, uh, he said, who won? I wasn't paying attention. I'm just worried about taxes. Uh, Senator Rob Portman of That's Ohio. Cheap. That is not, that, that is, that is, that is some weak tea. If you ever find yourself in a position where, uh, you are being asked to take a position then you say, Oh, I don't care about this important thing. I'm just too busy getting my job done. That is some weak tea. It'll come back to haunt you. Yeah. Uh, Senator Rob Portman. And I'm, I'm just listing these off cause I had such a reading this article was just, just like, I don't know, some kind of weird therapy. Um, Senator Rob Portman of, of Ohio, who is generally considered a more you know, sane individual, uh, quote, he's going to be for tax reform. I think, I don't know. I don't know him. Uh, Tim Scott, the lone African-American Republican in the Senate quote, didn't know anything about Roy Moore. And I'm not going to comment about anything I haven't read about. I literally have not followed that race. This is Richard Shelby, the other senior, the senior, I I thought you'd like this one. Uh, Oh, and then there's Jeff Flake, but let's do Shelby first. Uh, Richard Shelby, um, Alabama GOP Senator Richard Shelby backed Strange over Moore in the race to replace now Attorney General Jeff Sessions. But after Moore's primary win in heavily read Alabama, Shelby, who used to be a Democrat, predicted he'd be victorious in December. Shelby, though, was less eager to talk about Moore's record. Quote, Roy Moore is unique. A lot of people have history up here. When asked about Moore's vict- what Moore's victory means for the GOP, whether winning is ultimately more important than the person who was elected, Shelby said, I'm going to leave that up to y'all. Sure. Good. Jeff Flake. Jeff Flake. Jeff Flake said, yeah, I know his history. I'm obviously not enamored with his politics because that's not the future of the Republican Party. That's for sure. All right. Well, I'll give Flake credit for at least coming for at least coming within spitting distance of saying something. Uh, pretty much everyone else there. Uh, that is some truly elite professional grade equivocation. I'm actually sort of awestruck. Uh, by how effectively uh, by by how effectively those guys uh, were able to to bob and weave away from that question, and those are the ones who actually stopped to talk to the reporter. Those are the ones who stopped to talk to. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it really was like that's that that is some uh, some impressive uh, evasion there, and we should be giving out uh, full full credit for not for yeah for somehow managing to uh, to both say something and say nothing at all. I'm extremely impressed. So right, what so I'm, not, I'm not necessarily wishing this on, although it wouldn't kill us, but I'm not necessarily wishing this on uh, wishing that kind of ex- wishing that kind of trouble on Democrats um, in the sense that like you have you elect a genuine lunatic uh, who national Democrats who is nationally infamous and therefore everyone has to respond to it. When I'm looking for good people, when I urge lefty you know left you know leftist lunatics to help us define ourselves, uh, is to stand and be elected in places uh, maybe a little farther down where you're a good match for your community, uh, but are also part of the broader democratic uh, ecosystem and can help us again set the edge for just how far left we can be and still be within keeping with our values and also electable. That would be my request for any of you really serious lefties who are thinking about who, who feel the tug of lunacy and also want to run. Yeah. So in summary, on today's cruise through dumbest timeline America, Jonathan Chate is a fucking dipshit. Donald Trump uh, has malicious intent against the NFL for a 20-year-old, 30-year-old grudge because of it. as an owner of the USFL, he caused the league to f- gain $3.76 and fail. And the left needs more weirdos. Yeah. Well, um, I... 
that last one is a strange thing to hear coming out of our mouths. And yes, here we are. Yeah. Eh. yeah. Look, yeah. I mean, right. This is dumbest timeline America. What can you do? Look, I mean, there was that whole, what, which one of those pirates of the Caribbean when they're like upside down or something. I don't, I didn't understand it. Um, anyway, thanks for joining us. Um, Frank, always good to be with you. Um, our schedule is going to be a little weird over the next coming, over the, uh, coming two weeks um, as uh, the end of the Jewish holidays are coming up. Uh, but we will uh, definitely have something each week. We're just not sure exactly at what point during the week, but please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and then you'll get it when we actually do post something. Follow us on Twitter at taking ship and that's ship with a P as in perversity. We'll go with that yes. and check out our new Facebook page. Uh, and with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? So this week, uh, we are actually, at, we have a request for you all. Um, we ask that you take a vessel of your choice, a digital internet vessel. Uh, I'm really going to torture this device to death. Uh, take the digital internet vessel of your choice. An e-vessel. Uh, an e-vessel, if you will, um, to uh, Unidos por uh, Puerto Rico or to UNICEF or uh, some of the other organizations that are uh, doing uh, important work uh, helping to, to bring first uh, essential uh, first aid and, and succor to the people of Puerto Rico and then are going to set about helping uh, helping that country rebuild. Uh, these are uh, and these are American citizens, uh, and they have not received the support or uh, or assistance they have needed in a timely fashion for a variety of reasons. Uh, please uh, go to again Unidos Puerto Rico and uh, United for Puerto Rico. If you Google that, it will take you right to the site or to UNICEF. Uh, send in something. This is a big deal, uh, and and support is important so please take the e-vessel of your choice to there and uh, and do the right thing uh we on the other hand uh well and along with that uh we will also be on the high seas en route to finding this jones character who's been in the in legislative news so much and having a quiet word with him about uh this uh, the upon the jones act um someone needs to have a quiet word because uh you know listen it's a nice act you got here jonesy but uh, all good things come to an end buddy take care everybody mm-hmm.